Let us open up our Bibles to Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6. As we seek to consider today, who is it that is going to fall away as described in verses 4 through 8? Who falls away? I trust that everyone has a copy of the sermon notes. You're going to need that um, as we seek to be faithful in our unpacking of what is notably the most controversial passages in all of the New Testament. I can tell you right now, this is going to be a two-part message. I discovered that as I was finalizing everything. Uh, So we're going to get through part one today, and we'll pick up it again next week. We want to be faithful, we want to be careful, and we want to be good Bereans, amen, uh, to the Word of God, and this especially demands our, um, well, just our, 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 our utmost attention to make sure we're handling it correctly. Now to capture the context of where we find ourselves, let's back up to chapter 5, verse 11, because really the admonition that culminates in this stern proclamation of people who fall away in verse 8, begins right there. The the warning really begins in chapter 5, verse 11. So let's just back up and I'll begin to read there and um, we'll we'll go to verse number 8 in chapter 6. Hear the word of the Lord. Of whom we have many things to say and hard to be uttered, seeing ye are dull of hearing. For when for the time ye ought to be teachers, ye have need that one teach you again which be the first principles of the oracles of God, and are become such as have need of milk, and not of strong meat. For every one that useth milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. For strong meat belongs to them that are full age, even those who by reason of use have their senses, or that is the faculty of their judgment, exercised, to discern both good and evil. Therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of the Messiah, let us go on unto perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of the doctrine of baptisms and of laying on of hands and of resurrection of the dead and of eternal judgment. And this will we do if God permit. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come, if they shall fall away, to renew them again unto repentance, seeing they crucify to themselves the Son of God afresh and put Him to an open shame. For the earth which drinketh in the rain that cometh oft upon it and bringeth forth herbs met for them by whom it is dressed receiveth blessing from God. But that which beareth thorns and briars is rejected and is nigh unto cursing whose end is to be burned. And may the Lord bless the reading and the hearing and understanding of His Word. If I were to ask you, what is the foundation of the Gospel? What is it that you would say? What is the foundation of the gospel? Perhaps some of you would say the foundation of the gospel is Jesus. If you did say that, you would be correct. However, I'd I'd press you a little further and I'd say, what specifically about Jesus makes him the foundation of the gospel? Is it the fact that he is God? Is it the fact that he obeyed the law perfectly and righteously without any sin as the inspired writer of Hebrews taught us in chapter 4 verse 15? 
Well, if you were to ask James Haldane, an old Reformed Baptist minister who lived during the 18th century, he would tell you, quote, that the foundation of the gospel is the atonement. The atonement is the root from which he says all the ramifications of the gospel spring forth. And upon the correctness of our views regarding this subject, the atonement, depend our true or our false apprehensions of every single part of the revelation of God's mercy in the gospel. Why have I included that emphasis on the atonement at the beginning of my introduction of today's passages and specifically the atonement's connectedness to the gospel of Christ? Well, I do it precisely because as we sought to rightly understand last week what is notably the most controversial passages in all the New Testament canon of Scripture, that is the topic of apostasy, that is the topic of falling away from one's commitment to Christ, I believe that the doctrine of the person of Christ, the Messiah, and the doctrine of His penal substitutionary work, i.e. the atonement, is what is at the very center of what is causing the inspired writer to have such concern, to speak in such harsh and dangerous warning ways as we read it today and we're going to consider. This conclusion, I gather, because I feel that it became clear to us after considering last time in this passage, verses 1 through 3, and especially in verses 1 and 2, where we observed by the aid of the Hebrew scholar John Gill, that it appeared there were some among these professing Christians who were, for whatever reason, not moving past the basic Old Covenant categories and the role of the ceremonial law and its associated sacrifices and its religious washings, They weren't moving on to a robust view of the new covenant fulfillment that the Messiah, the Lord Jesus, that He's been preaching to them, had accomplished through His great high priestly work of sacrifice and atonement. In other words, among these professors here, some of which who demonstrated, as He said, slothfulness, there were some who we will find out today had not truly come to a saving, a resting knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, or more specifically, had not come to a singular hope in the promise of the the Gospel. That is, Jesus Christ, as is mentioned in chapter 1, verse 3, had purged by Himself all of us by His work, purged us of our sins, as he said in chapter 2, verse 10, was made perfect, complete by his sufferings. And as reiterated again in chapter 2, verse 17, as a merciful and faithful high priest in the things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. There are some in this congregation that the inspired writer is writing to evidenced by verses 1 and 2 that have not settled their souls on the only hope that our salvation depends upon and that is Christ and who He is and Christ and what He has done and Christ and what He has promised to do unto the end. And therefore, their slothfulness, their willingness to be content in that state of halfwayness, of completely owning the claims of Christ in His Gospel and God's divine plan of His penal substitutionary atoning sacrifice is what will tiptoe them straight into being thorns and briars and burn in the lakes of hell. In other words, apostasy. While we must recognize the fact that there is much controversy that indeed surrounds these verses that we're considering now. I hope to convince you 
that the correct approach to understanding them is to recognize that this overall context, starting back in chapter 5, verse 11, down to the very end of chapter 6, is written to, putting it in visual brackets here, professed Christians who are yet slothful Christians, and they will demonstrate their true conversion either by them receiving the correction and correcting their thinking and their practices, or they will evidence the falseness of their correction or conversion by rejecting the correction that's offered them and continuing on in their slothful beliefs and practices. To state it plainly, the individuals described in this chapter are professors, yet potentially, time will tell, false converts. Now I want to say something very important before we move forward in considering these texts. You and I, at this point of this introduction, have to be very, very careful to automatically excuse ourselves from the weight and the seriousness of the warnings in these passages. And the reason I say that is because this very simple fact These texts that were inspired to be written were not specifically written for false converts as such, but they were written for all who profess to be converts. And so for that mere reason that the writer saying, I'm not God, and as I write this into your church, I cannot discern your hearts and tell who it is or who isn't truly converted. I can only tell you that the path and the thinking, verses 1 and 2 of chapter 6, that you're entertaining, is going to lead you to apostasy and abandoning the one true gospel and faith, which will evidence that you never really believed it. And so therefore, since I don't know that, I'm going to tell all professing Christians, here is a means by which you can use as a calibration that if you begin to do these things, it can lead to your spiritual ruin. And so therefore, all of us here today, lest we have fallen into the ditch of presumption, need to allow these texts to have a little teeth in them. And as I seek to apply it at the very end of the day's message, I hope that as with myself, it it encourages you to continue to make your calling, your election sure, and your rest upon the gospel and the atoning work of Christ and Christ alone. And make you even more zealous, brothers and sisters, to guard that precious, as James Haldane calls it, fortress of the gospel. Think about that for a minute. The atonement, the singular hope that we have in Christ, it serves as if it were a fortress of the gospel. It has, doesn't it, as Haldane said, true ramifications to every revelation of mercy that God reveals to us through His divine scheme of the gospel. And so therefore, let us, since we profess Christ, take seriously what's about to be unpacked here in verses 4 through 8. So how are we going to approach the text? Well, as you see in your order of work, or your sermon notes, first, I want us to be responsible and go through the text together. We're going to go through verses 4 through 8 together, and we're going to analyze the description of those who fall away. Remember, we're trying to answer the question, who shall fall away? Who is it that's going to fall away? Well, there's a description of given of those who finally fall away, and we're going to look at those descriptions together, and I hope that you, you get what I got out of it, that when you look at this, and you dive a little bit into the words themselves, it will greatly enhance your ability to help others who have been truly converted. And they read these passages, which are some of the most scariest passages in all the New Testament. And you can help navigate as a mature Christian uh, other immature believers through these texts and show them so long as they're pointing, they're hoping, and they're trusting in the atoning work of Christ. He will keep them. He will preserve them until the very end. And so we're going to go through the text together. And then what we'll do next Sunday 
is we're going to consider the three most prominent theological interpretations of these texts. So today we're just going to do exegete work. We're going to go down through them and make sure we understand what it's saying. And then next week we're going to say, okay, with all of that information, brethren, here's three possible interpretations. And we're going to demonstrate in the harmony of all of Scripture and the immediate context these verses find themselves, which one is not only the most reasonable, but this is very clear which one is the correct interpretation. And we'll wrap that up next week. So then therefore, let's begin under our first heading here to analyze the descriptions of those who are being referred to in this text. And this is where your sermon notes are going to come in handy. Notice first with me the verses 4 through 6. I'm not going to reread it for the sake of time. But it really forms just one sentence. It's one big long sentence. And its main clause, or that is its baseline theme, which everything else that will come after and is contained in it is subordinate to, the main clause is this. You have it in your notes. It is impossible to renew them again to repentance. As you see the word renew, it means, in our lexicons, it means to restore to a previous condition. And so right away, verses 4 to 6, and then even all the way down to 8, the teaching, the main clause, the main thrust of the passage is really quite clear, isn't it? It's very clear. It's not ambiguous. It's not confusing. The text is, in fact, teaching this. Those who can be accurately described in the preceding verses that we're about to look at, they may lose something that they possessed once or experienced, and they can never be recovered to that prior position again. That's what the texts are teaching. Now, therefore, it is incumbent upon us, church, to rightly understand how then they are described and what they are described as having or possessing. Because when you read it on the surface, it appears as though these are true believers. Does it not when you just read it in passing? And so it does become upon, incumbent upon us as students of the Word to dissect this, to look at this, and to see and answer the question, who is it that falls away? And so we're going to consider now in the preceding verses seven descriptions of those who can never be recovered if they do fall away from the faith that they profess, from the gospel that they profess that they own, they can never be recovered again. As you have in your notes, notice that first of all, as we tiptoe into these seven descriptions, that the first four descriptions point to gospel privileges which all professors can enjoy for a season, but which later they can forsake, which will be evidenced by them deserting, turning their back on the biblical person of Christ. Notice I said biblical, right? We'll see that in a moment. And they evidence that they only had it or were committed to it for a season because of the biblical gospel. The last three descriptions, which are evident in verses 7 and 8, those are descriptions of someone who's a a clear apostate. Those those are definitions of apostate. The first four we're going to see in verses 4 down to 6 are four descriptions of someone we're going to see in a moment are four descriptions that could be uh, uh, enjoyed by everyone who profess this uh, uh, faith in Christ. That's what we're going to see in a moment. Right? And, and, and then it would evidence whether it was genuine or not by what they do with that throughout the period of their life. So this is what now we're, we're wanting to see. We want to see, first of all, what does it mean in this first description of those who can fall away and never be recovered. They were once enlightened. They were once enlightened. Now, I very purposely gave you in your sermon notes what that word in the Greek means. It means, in fact, well, like it says on the surface, it's a good translation, to enlighten, to illuminate. It's used mostly in this sense, such as it is in Ephesians 1.18, when dealing with someone's blinded, calloused understanding opened and illuminated to the spiritual truths of the gospel. 
It is used that way. Can't deny that. For instance, in Ephesians 1.18, Paul says, inspired by the Holy Ghost, the eyes of one's understanding being enlightened, being opened. Why is it opened? That ye may know the truth. And if we were doing an exegetical teaching through Ephesians, we would see that that know isn't just a head knowledge, right? So there is an experiential salvific enlightening, right, that can be designated to this word. But in other places, and here's what you need to understand, it means no more than to simply teach someone something. Most commentators and theologians will point you uh, to the Hebrew word which this Greek word can be a derivative from as it is in 2 Kings 12.2, 2 Kings 17, 27 and 28 and Judges 13.8 of people who had a head knowledge of God's oracles and truth but no heart knowledge. Now all of this talk about enlightenment, what type of knowledge, what type of enlightenment, it does force us to consider briefly just for a moment the nature of knowledge, the nature of enlightenment. And this is where I found John Owen very helpful in, this, in his commentary on this. Listen to what he, he outlines. There's three aspects to the nature of enlightenment. The first one is that it's purely natural. It doesn't take any... It's, 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 a na- it's the law of nature, right? Uh, one plus one equals two. Those sort of things. It doesn't take as if it were a supernatural operation of the Holy Spirit to give someone this knowledge. You touch the stove, it's hot. That's hot. That's a fact. That's knowledge, right? So the first category nature of knowledge is that. It's just facts, and I have that retained in my head. It didn't take any special help to do that. But secondly, as we noted in Ephesians 1.18, and also evidence in 2 Corinthians, there is a saving knowledge. Or you could say a sanctifying knowledge. A sanctifying light and illumination That again shows us as sinners the truth of the gospel. But thirdly, I thought this was helpful for Moen. He says, there's a third knowledge that though, quote, he says, it transcendently affects the mind with some glances of beauty, glory, and excellency of spiritual things, yet it does not give that direct, steady, intuitive insight into those truths which is only obtained by grace. Neither does it renew, change, or transform the soul into a conformity under the things that it declares by planting inside them the will and the affections as gracious, saving light does. Well, which kind of enlightenment, which kind of knowledge, nature of knowledge is being described here in verse 4? Well, to help us, I would suggest that what the inspired writer said back in chapter 5, verse 12, look at your Bibles, indicates what he's meaning here. Look at chapter 5, verse 12. Remember he told them when he began this exhortation? He said, When, by now, ye ought to be teachers, ye have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God, and are become such as have need of milk, and not strong meat. And then in chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, he demonstrates that they had some sort of real, committed, professing knowledge that they possessed that they're attributing is making some impact on them. In other words, guys, what I'm trying to say is these guys weren't sitting around and saying, Jesus isn't the Messiah. They were professing Christians the gospel, the knowledge of the light of the gospel in some way, shape, or form has made an impact on them. And they ought to be, the inspired writer of Hebrews saying, you ought to be professors in atonement theology by now, but you're not. You're slothful in this knowledge that you are gravitating toward and that you're holding up that you profess and that you believe. The person in view then here with that in our pocket, I believe is the one that Jesus describes, as you see in your notes, in Matthew 13, verses 20 and 21, when he said, He that received the seed of the word upon stony places, the same as he that hears the word, and for a time with joy 
He receives the word, yet hath no root in himself, but dureth for a while, endures for a while, for when tribulation or persecution arises because of the world, circumstances of the world, by and by he is offended. So I think that that's who this is being talked about here. I think in consideration of chapter 5, verse 12, they have some professed knowledge. They've received it with joy. They're saying we're Christians. But then in chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, they're spending all their time laying again, laying again, laying again the foundations of something that's alluring them back to the old covenant, questioning the atonement that God, through His only begotten Son, chapters 1 and 2 and 3, has provided them. I think that's what's going on here. For this time, they're enduring. But if it keeps going that way, they're going to apostatize. Such persons, I think in view of chapter 5, verse 12, in view of what Jesus says in Matthew 13, in view of what we're reading here and understanding the nature of knowledge, the three categories of enlightenment, there are such persons that can have an acquired knowledge of the truth that they understand who Jesus is. They have an acquired knowledge of understanding what Jesus' claims are. They will go as far as to profess consent to the truths and confess that they really have a saving interest in them. And in most cases can display temporary changes in their life to persuade other people that there has been, in fact, a real root planted. But yet, their continual, and this comes back to the, the words of this exhortation, slothfulness, wasted time, contentment with elementary, their continuing indifference to God's Word, and subsequently their subtle retrogression going backwards, Regarding spiritual things is dangerously alarming and it displays evidence of their true situation, perhaps, that needs immediate actions. Immediately. In other words, that person who's being confronted by the authority of God's Word, being exhorted by a loving, faithful brother or sister in the church, should not be coddled with a systematic theology that allows them to continue retrogressing in things of spiritual nature. There's been times in my ministry, I'll come along, you know, there's someone just perpetually evidencing no real love for the Word of God. Uh, don't get this the wrong way. I've mentioned this before, but I think it's a good illustration. It's coming to my mind of someone just sleeping all through the service. After five minutes, I mean, I won't even get through the introduction and sleeping for the whole service. And I'm not talking about once or twice. I'm talking about every service. And when someone comes along and says, brother, I'm concerned. And it's regarded as, well, no, I, I, I don't, there's nothing wrong with me. I don't, I don't need help. I don't need prayer. I don't need, you know, someone to... Just try to figure out a plan or something to help me with this. That person drastic, or dreadfully has taken the reformed systematic theology, folded it up nice and clean with sharp little corners, and they tucked it in their pocket and they said, I'm okay. I'm okay. It's disastrous. Disastrous. It demanded immediate action. It seems as though the truth of the gospel here may have not taken root at all in their heart, despite what they say they believe, despite what they actually can say and verbalize they know. And so under the influence of whatever it is, trials in their life, other considerations, they begin to revise, redefine their former commitment about Jesus and about His gospel. And ultimately with time, they'll depart from their formerly commitment to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And like a dog, they're going to return back to their old vomit. They're going to return back to their old ways of life, their old ways of thinking, their old religion, which I think is the case here in the context we have here. But I'll go a step further. Within the Christian visible evangelical milieu, there are some who do the same thing. 
They are confronted with Christ in the Word. They're admonished perhaps gently by another brother or sister in the church. And instead of dealing with what's being presented and demonstrated as we read in Jeremiah 3 with a sense of humility and say, yes, I'm that man. What do they do? They revise their Christianity. They revise their understanding of the Gospel. They revise different understandings of worship. And it's very easily today to get on the internet and find an assembly who accepts your revised version of the Christianity and the Gospel. I think that that's what a lot of people do. Well, let's be careful of that. It didn't have to be that way. It doesn't have to be that way for these individuals. If such persons would regard their slothful case with the dangerous alarm that it demands and they would turn their feet toward the path of truth and righteousness, they would be preserved in their commitment to Jesus Christ. They would be preserved and they would continue on and get out of that rut unto Christian maturity and they would grow. And that's the whole really blessed means of being within a covenant community of believers in a local church. But sadly, on, their hand, on the other hand, while their measure of knowledge that they possessed was very real, chapter 5, verse 12, and while they experienced something of its transforming power, they had joy in it for a season, Matthew uh, uh, 10, where Jesus was, 13, I'm sorry, where Jesus was talking about, they, 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 they receive some sorts of, of transformation of their thinking and their behavior. Nonetheless, by abandoning Christ and the total fulfillment of the Messiah and His atoning sacrificial work, it shows that they never were truly converted. They did not, as we sung just before we came into the sermon, cast their entire hope and continually cast their entire hope upon Him. Well, it says secondly that these people not only were enlightened, but it says that they have tasted the heavenly gift. Now notice in your sermon note, the word tasted, it carries with it the idea to try the flavor of something, to taste something. To taste something doesn't mean to eat and digest something, right? So they tasted, they, had, they tasted the flavor of the heavenly gift. And if you execute that word gift, we don't have time to do that, but you can do it in your own time you'll see in the New Testament that it's always associated with the gift of Jesus Christ, that word. The gift of the Holy Ghost, that word. The gift of God's Word. The gift of God's grace. And so I think that the most comprehensive meaning of what they tasted and what they tried was a taste of the whole sum of the Gospel, which encompasses Jesus Christ, His Word, God's grace, etc., etc., Right? That's what that means. And so we gather from chapter 6, verse 1, that they did for 15 years have a taste of and some level of commitment with elementary principle things regarding the good news of the Messiah, which indicates to us that they only had a partial taste, an elementary tasting of the things of the gospel and not a real hunger or a, they were slothful. They didn't have a real hunger for a full soul nourishing, searching taste and appetite to exhaust every aspect of how, what the claim of the gospel is in his substitutionary atoning work and what it is, is absolutely their only hope and true. And we no longer have to, as Jeremiah chapter 3 was telling us this morning, they would have no longer had to look toward the Ark of the Covenant or any other old covenant promises. This is what, beloved, false converts do with the gospel. They make an experiment of it. They taste it. They try it. However, they never really consume its truth to the point of reflecting a long, continued obedience unto it or yield to the authority of the gospel and God's word in their lives. For a while, they like to taste it. But with time and other influences, eventually, what do they do? They spit it out of their mouths. For some... It's financial or physical persecutions. And they got to spit the gospel out in allegiance and commitment to what it claims. It's too much. I can't endure it. 
Isn't there some revised form that will relieve this financial and physical persecution from my life? Isn't it just a small compromise, but it's a lower C compromise? And I still can wear the Christian t-shirt and still have the bumper sticker and still go to the building that has a steeple on its chapel. And we all agree with the lower C compromise of the gospel. Please, somebody, help. I don't want to you know, pay the price of persecution. For others, it's unwillingness to pay the price of discipleship. Meaning it's not popular all the time, the gospel. The true biblical Christ and the true biblical gospel is not popular, especially to a prideful uh, nation and a prideful church. And so they're just unwilling to do it. For many, it's a love for this world and its temporal pleasures. And others, false converts, it's a rejection of Jesus' outright teachings. We get a glimpse of this. I think I put it in your sermon notes in John chapter 6. Do you remember when the Lord Jesus Christ was alluding to his penal substitutionary death and then his abrogating and redefining and constituting the Passover meal to point to his sacrificial work? And what did it say in John? It said, for many that, for at that time, many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. They were given by the Lord Jesus His truth. The truth, the text says, was too hard for them to receive. And what did they do? They tasted it for a while. They were impacted with it for a while. They loved and they liked the heavenly gift for a while. But when Jesus confronted them of what it meant, it was too much for them. They couldn't go along with it. And so they fell away. They walked away. Beloved, this is the same application it is today. Jesus speaks to us. You hear me say this often through his word. As we're going down through here, Jesus is speaking to you. I just took the time to study and digest it and try to regurgitate it to you. But these are Jesus' words. This is Jesus' voice. And whenever Jesus declares something from through his living voice, through his word to us, and it's on the table, and everybody's standing around the table looking at it, there's going to be some that says, okay, I know what that means, and I know the implications of what that's saying, but that's just too hard for me. I can't accept that. And what do they do? They walk away. They walk away. Now, they may be standing there, and whatever... A, you know, visible sign that they're a Christian, whether it's the necklace, the shirt, or whatever, whether, whether it's their podcast or whatever. But when, the, when Jesus speaks, and it's too hard for them to accept it, and they walk away, I commend to you that it is very likely, and it's very probable from these texts, that they have tasted the heavenly gift, but yet they're not fully committed to what it reveals. It's a very dangerous situation to be in. Very dangerous. And the sad reality is this. And we should never be surprised when it happens that the church can expect to observe false converts until the very last day when Jesus returns. There are going to be people who have never truly been converted evidencing these traits, possessing these traits, experiencing these traits who can fall away and will fall away. Notice thirdly, they were enlightened, they tasted the heavenly gift, and it says they were made partakers of the Holy Ghost. Now, it's important for us to let the Scriptures teach us how people in two ways can partake of the Holy Ghost. Scripture evidences that there's two ways people can participate or partake in the Holy Ghost. Because when you just read that, you think, oh, they, they, they've tasted the heavenly gift, they've received an inhabitation, partook of the Holy Ghost. And so you're automatically, without digging any deeper in this, you're just thinking automatically, this is a believer. And oh my goodness, they can fall away. But let's consider biblically, what are the two ways someone can participate or partake of the Holy Ghost? You have it in your sermon notes. First, someone can partake of the Holy Ghost by a personal indwelling or comforting an inhabitation of the Holy Ghost. I would call this, they participate in the Holy Ghost savingly. 
But then there is, the scripture evidences for us, a second way, and that is someone can participate in the Holy Ghost by the Spirit's working or operations. So let's just consider the first way, that is the savingly way, how someone can participate or partake in the Holy Ghost. Scripture speaks of the promised Spirit, evidences, puts forth the proposition that the Holy Spirit is a gift to all of those who have truly been converted for these purposes. To lead, to guide, and to comfort us throughout our Christian life and our pilgrimage. That's the sum of the the reason and the usefulness and the inhabitation of the Holy Ghost. How do we know this? Well, look at your sermon notes. Mark 1.8, considering a saving participation of partaking of the Holy Ghost. He was promised. You remember John the Baptist. He was telling everyone, oh, I'm not the Messiah. Uh, I'm baptizing with water here. A symbol of of repentance has taken place, a confession, a working operation within your heart. But he, referring to the true Messiah, will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. What he's referring there, of course, is the Messiah coming and giving of His Spirit in a saving way. He's going to baptize you. Scripture uses the language, He's going to seal you. He's going to make you. He's going to indwell you for the purposes that we just observed, to lead, to guide, to comfort, etc. And then Ephesians 1.13, just another example of how someone can partake in the Holy Ghost savingly. We learned that savingly the Spirit is a pledge of an internal inheritance that can never be taken away or never someone could forfeit and fall away from it. In Him, Ephesians 1.13 says, In Christ, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in Him. How? With the Holy Spirit of promise. Connect that idea of something being sealed and contained within. This is permanency. This is eternality. Never can be lost, can never fall away. You are sealed within Him with the Holy Spirit of promise who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession. So those who have this sort of partaking of the Holy Spirit God sees as His very own possession. His value possession. But yet, God's going to lose. We would actually conclude or we would think that God's going to allow one of His pieces of valuable possessions who is given His Spirit as a pledge. Whose pledge is it? It's Christ's pledge. It's Christ's vow that you will receive internal hence, we actually would think that we're going to take that text and say that God actually will lose, give you the option of taking away from Him one of His possessions? Will we actually conclude that God actually gives us that sort of power? I would say that that's foolish just to think that way. To finish the text, with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of His glory. Oh no. He's going to keep all of his possessions. And guess what? On that great day, they're going to give him all the glory. All those who didn't deserve such mercy and grace. This is the aspect, the beauty of the design of salvation, the application of salvation through the atoning work of Christ, and then the application of salvation by the Spirit's work, partaking of the Spirit savingly. This type of saving participation in the Holy Spirit, we know from John 14, 17, the world cannot reach out and grab it nor receive it. That text clearly teaches that. It is a special operation by God's sovereign election upon sinners. However, there's a second way the Bible teaches that people participate or partake of the Holy Ghost And we'll have to conclude which one best fits the context here and fits these verses of someone who can fall away. Scripture demonstrates that the Spirit's operation and gifts may be experienced and even used by those who are not truly converted. Listen to this quote by John Owen again. It was super insightful. The Holy Ghost is present with many as unto powerful. Powerful. He's talking about experiential operations with whom he is not present as to a gracious inhabitation. Or many 
are made partakers of Him in His spiritual gifts who are never made partakers of Him in His saving graces. Now, when I first read that, I was like, wait a minute. Really? Yeah, really. Because I found His insights very helpful. In part, it's how we can make sense. Is it not, beloved? In part, it's how we make sense of that foretold and that frightful encounter that we discover between the risen Christ in His heavenly session and the professing false converts, as you have in your sermon notes, over in Matthew 7, 22 and 23. What do you mean, Dr. Owen, that there's some people that can actually experientially, powerfully have some operations and even gifts of the Holy Spirit, but not be savingly? That threw me for a loop. But look with me in Matthew 7, 22, 23. It's biblical. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? Okay, maybe, maybe we don't see powerful operations of the Holy Spirit there or a gift. But look here. And in that name have cast out devils and in thy name done many wonderful works. And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. We're getting a picture here that so far in these three descriptions, there are some people that have had some real intimate confessed knowledge of the gospel, Jesus' claims. They're going along with it for a while. There is real uh, psychological, spiritual, emotional connections to it. They're going along. And they're even evidencing in some cases, we can't be 100% certain, but it is very likely that they were evidencing some cases of actually performing works by the operation of the Holy Spirit. This helps us then, I think, to understand a little bit better the notorious false converts, the two of which that exist in the New Testament. Judas and Demas. Were they not, church, initially true yoke fellows with the church? They were. They were helping in the work of the gospel in the church. However, their professed conversion, we find out, was not true. We know that 2 Timothy 4.10 says that Demas abandoned Paul. Whatever he did, he must have revised his Christianity. His views are just abandoned it altogether. I think it was an abandonment altogether, a complete apostasy. Because the text says that he loved the present world. Which evidences for us that Demas was deceived in believing that what Satan had to offer in this life was better than what Jesus promised in this life but Jesus more so promised in the life hereafter. Demas fell into that. And so he walked away. But Demas was with Paul. Look at Judas. The same thing for, for covetous money. Did, did Judas, we don't have it in Scripture, and it is, I admit, some speculation, but, but did Judas somehow or another think that it was going to work out? That, that, that he could rebrand this messianic message? He, got, you know, he walked with Jesus for a while, he got some knowledge, and then he would go start his own thing. Who knows? But that's how sometimes this stuff happens. Wow. So we come back and we see that they partook of the Holy Ghost, but we have to ask ourselves again, for those who fall away, what sort of participation or partaking of the Holy Ghost or the Holy Spirit did they actually receive? Verse 4. I mean, uh, description 4. Look with me in your notes here. Not only were they made partakers of the Holy Ghost, but verse 5 says they've tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come. The word tasted there is the same word that we had uh, back up in verse number 4. They they tasted the good word of God. They've sampled it. They've got the flavor of it. And also they've tasted the powers of the world to come. Now the word that's translated, word here, it literally means, as you see in your sermon notes, that which is or has been uttered by the living voice. We know from Hebrews 1.3, from Hebrews 11.3 and 12.19, that what the writer is meaning here by the word of God 
He means, like in verse 4, that they've tasted in some way the heavenly gift of the truth of God's Word. It was given by the living Word of God. It was given by the living God of the Gospel. It was proclaimed. And so they're, they're received, they have received that Word. They have partaken of that Word. But more specifically, what many theologians agree that this phrase, Word of God, refers to is God's good Word about the coming Messiah and the fulfillment of that Messiah in Jesus Christ. They say that because in Jeremiah 33 and in Jeremiah 29, which we'll see as we go through Jeremiah, this phrase, good word of God, is used several times. And every time it's used, it's in the context of pointing forward to the Messiah. And so it is very likely that what they received or what they tasted was of the gospel, the the acknowledgement of the gospel. And if this is the case, then it appears kind of what's being done here in verse 5 is a repetition, isn't it? Of when he said in verse 4 that they received of or they tasted of the heavenly gift. It seems like he's repeating himself because we just acknowledge that the heavenly gift encompasses the whole of the gospel, the word, the spirit, etc., etc., right? So why is he repeating himself? Well, he's actually is repeating himself. What he's doing is he's fleshing it out a little bit, what the heavenly gift entailed. It entailed the very living Word of God being given to them. The, 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 the explanation of the Messiah promised in Jeremiah and by Isaiah. They were told that. They acknowledged it. They accepted it, it's, we, we gather. And so what we have here is a detailed description of the heavenly gift that has just been mentioned, namely that they were given the good Word of the Gospel. And although they tasted it, as we've already observed, the false convert will eventually spit it out when, again, the challenges and trials of this life or something comes along that forces them to want to lessen the persecution, the uncomfortability of adhering to the gospel. Now, regarding this phrase, the powers of the world to come, after all my studies are looking at that, I'm taking it as that referring to what he refers to in chapter 2, verse 4. Look back at chapter 2, verse 4. What's, what is this powers of the age to come? How shall we escape, he says, chapter 2, verse 3, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which is at first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by them that heard Him? God also bearing them witness how both with signs and wonders and with diverse miracles and gifts of the Holy Ghost according to His own will. And so, what he's referring to, I believe here, the powers, they've tasted these powers of the world to come, is this, the signs, the wonders, and the miracles. In other words, the powers that the writer has already noted here. And also, these powers that were evidenced among the early church, we know, can be validated in 1 Corinthians 12.10 where it's listing some of the gifts that the church was experiencing and witnessing amongst themselves. We've already observed there were some being exercised in Matthew 7 by false converts. These types of extraordinary operations, these powers of the world to come, of the Holy Spirit, which as we're as a church going through in our New Testament reading in the book of Acts, they characterize the promised messianic age And what is implied here, what's being implied here in verse number 5 about some of these professors is that not a few of them perhaps either A, performed these works, they tasted the powers of the world to come, the messianic age to come, which would be validated by signs, wonders, and miracles. Right? We're tracking with this. Or B, what I believe is most likely implied here in verse number 5, that they witnessed these works And by witnessing others performing these works, the false converts witness God's glorious and powerful working and the confirmation of the Messiah's gospel and the inauguration of His new covenant. They are witnessing it. First-hand eyewitnesses. Well, we've considered the first four descriptions of what whoever the they are or who the they people are that, that can fall away and never be recovered, we've considered the first four descriptions of what they may actually biblically have possessed, experienced, 
and can lose. And having now considered these first four descriptions in our closing thoughts of those who were among this early professing church, there were those who we see in spite of having enjoyed great privileges, in spite of their knowledge of the gospel and its miraculous confirmations, which were wrought about by an extraordinary operation of the Holy Spirit, they had, according to verses 1 and 2, for whatever reason, begun to evidence, make apparent, a wavering or a casting off of the doctrine of the Messiah as taught to them or in connection with His atoning work for a continual laying again the foundation of the old covenant ceremonial laws and thereby through which they would fall away. And if they go back to that, the writer of Hebrews is telling them, if you abandon the true biblical gospel, it is impossible to recover you. Now we'll get into more of that next week. But brothers and sisters, what you and I will discover is the reason it's so impossible Because man's pride, as we learn in Jeremiah 3, is so deceitfully wicked and capable of hardening the heart against the clear revelation of Scripture. And he will not bow to it. And he will harden his heart into perdition. You will never retrieve him. And he will happily, with a smile on his face, go into apostasy arguing that he still has the gospel while he's an apostate of the gospel and is irretrievable. This is what we will see. Now regarding application to ourselves, we could make a lot looking at this, but I for one, I find these passages extremely helpful because they provide for me and I hope for you too a very sober reflection upon my own profession. And they remind me of the helpful passages we have, such as Philippians 2.12, where our beloved Apostle Paul says, Beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Or as the inspired Apostle Peter in 2 Peter 1.10 says, Brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, ye shall never fare, uh, fall. You remember? Do you hear the harmony here, brothers and sisters? You remember how in Hebrews chapter three, our inspired writer was saying, "Consider Christ, your high priest and your apostle." We looked at that word "consider." You hear Peter now here saying, "Brother, brethren, give diligence." There's no room for playing footsie with the person and the work of Jesus Christ and His penal substitutionary death and what it did and who it was for? No, you give diligence to make your calling and election sure. Have you tasted of that atonement? Do you understand that atonement? Or are you settled with these elementary little elements that are going to confuse you and think that you have somehow of another a work in this thing as a, as a, as a mere man? You're hearing the implications, the theological dangerous implications that we're dealing with here. How can we do this? How can we have any hope of doing this? This writer tells us, as you have in your sermon notes, in Hebrews 12, 1-2, as we are about to do as we go to the Lord's Supper, we are going to only do this in evidence that we are truly converted that we truly have believed in the gospel of Jesus Christ and His penal substitutionary work and in that and in that alone so that He receives as His own possession all of the glory. We will only do that. Chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. When we lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us, young men who are praying with me before church, you think of these verses, think of our prayers and the sins which so easily beset us, and let us run with patience, with patience the race that is set before us as professing Christians, looking unto what, beloved? Say it together. Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, 
who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. There's the penal substitutionary atonement. Despising the shame and in victory, the text says, is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. The fortress of the gospel. That's what's going to sustain us unto the end. Those who want to go find shelter and find a different fortress, let them attempt to do so. But when persecution comes, when they're challenged by the authority of Christ and His Word, you will see they will revise the glorious gospel and especially the atonement in order to lighten, in order to relieve the consequences or implications that it's presenting. We don't have to do that, brothers and sisters. Let Christ be who Christ is. And may we allow His atoning work do what it says it has done. And when we ourselves are weak, when we fall, when we fail, let us evidence our true conversion by looking again and again to His promises. Look unto Jesus, the text said, the author and the finisher of our faith. And let us be zealous, ever so zealous, to encourage one another when there is a sense of slothfulness in questioning that. Or some, it happens a lot in the ivory towers of academia, some philosophical rewording of the atonement that's not clear for God's people. Let us be the church of Christ. Let faithful pastors and faithful men in the church rise up and say, no, 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 no. You don't, don't, don't word the atonement in the fortress of Christ that way. It causes confusion. God wished for it to be, did He not, brothers, so far as we read, sisters, in this letter so far, it's crystal clear. He purged us through His sufferings. He accomplished something. Let us defend that until the very end. Let us go to Him in prayer. O oh, gracious God in heaven, Lord, thank You for truly what many look at as dreadful passages here in the New Testament, Lord. Thank You that we can look at these and as we conclude today by looking to Christ, we truly understand, O oh Lord, that we can walk away from these passages today with great hope, not in and of ourselves, not in and of our handling of the enlightenment, our, Lord, usefulness of the gifts of the Holy Spirit that we may have acquired. Oh God, while there is great responsibilities with these things, God, we walk away in a sense of joy knowing what You have already proclaimed through this Gospel message in Hebrews, that Christ and Christ alone is our hope. He is our foundation. And with that, Lord, we organically desire to give our lives unto Thee. We desire as your sons and daughters of the new Jerusalem, Lord, to never be enticed as the wayward Israelites were in Jeremiah 3, to be enticed by the gods of this world, or as Demas and Judas by the trappings and temporal pleasures of this world. Lord, we organically want to surrender our hearts, our lives, our time, our energy, the faculties of our intellect, every single unique crafting as individuals that you've done in and through us. Lord, we're prepared to give that to you, to serve you, not out of fear. Oh, but out of love. Out of love because we know that all that we are and all that we have Depend and rest upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we come, or about to come, to remember His covenant sacrifice upon the cross, Lord, in His supper, help us, I pray, to just, Lord, in humble worship and adoration of who You are, what He has done, fall at the feet of the cross again this day and remember that Christ is ours and we are His by His great work. Help us, Lord, I pray, in those moments of weakness when we come to these texts, to look away from ourselves, away from our failings, and look to Christ and to His blessed hope. Renew within us repentance. 
renew within us a vigor to strive unto be the strive to be the the, the possession that we are in you and, and what we owe, O oh God, to you of a debt of gratitude. Help us, Lord. We are weak, we are frail. We are but dust, O oh God, that has been saved by your sovereign grace, and we need thee hour upon hour. We bless you and we thank you and we worship you. For you are our sovereign, holy King and God, our Savior, our merciful, patient, long-suffering Savior. We bless you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.